Here in the Bible, a word is being utilized not only between two tribes, but in a war between Menashe and Ephraim, both Josephites. They are bound by the same family, the same history, the same experiences, the same language, the same faith. They are brothers. The very fact that Shibboleth is a Hebrew word highlights the bond between them. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 79, Pygmalion and the Shibboleth Story. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1912, George Bernard Shaw wrote the play Pygmalion about a phoneticist named Henry Higgins, who trains a woman named Eliza Doolittle to change her accent, to use grammar properly, and to thereby change her social station. In a preface to the play, Shaw described his inspiration, which was his belief that the English did not take their language seriously. Shaw wrote, quote, The English have no respect for their language and will not teach their children to speak it. They spell it so abominably that no man could teach himself what it sounds like. It is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him. German and Spanish are accessible to foreigners. English is not accessible even to Englishmen. The reformer England needs today is an energetic, phonetic enthusiast. That is why I have made such a one the hero of a popular play. End quote. Pygmalion, of course, became the musical My Fair Lady with Rex Harrison and Audrey Hepburn. And Shaw's sentiment about language became the song, Why Can't the English Teach Their Children How to Speak? Featuring the line, an Englishman's way of speaking absolutely classifies him. The moment he speaks, he makes another Englishman despise him. This, of course, is a description of English society. But when it comes to the way of speaking of the ancient Israelites, it could be said in a much more frightening way. For in the book of Judges, a matter of pronunciation becomes central to a civil war, one which tells us about the disintegration during this period of Israelite history, but also about what would ultimately bring the people of Israel together. Following the rise and fall of Avimelech, the son of Gideon, a life marked by murder, violence, and bloodshed, we are told little of the next leaders, the judges that follow, Toval, son of Pua, and Yair of Gilead. As Israel continues to embrace paganism, God allows them to fall into the hands of the Ammonites. The people cry out to the Almighty, and then the next figure to serve as military savior is Yiftach, who descends from the part of the tribe of Menashe that lives on the east side of the Jordan River. And with Yiftach comes a tale that is even more disturbing than those we have seen before. Yiftach prepares for war against Ammon, and he promises God an offering of whatever comes out of the city to greet him upon his return. Chapter 11, verse 30. And Yiftach vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If thou shalt deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Victory is achieved, and what happens next is horrifying. Verse 34. And Yiftach came to Mitzpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him, with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. The sages of the Talmud seem to read the story literally, that Yiftach actually brought his daughter as an offering. In contrast, many medieval Jewish exegetes interpret the passage differently, noting the later words of verse 39. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew not man, 
These exegetes therefore understand the story as one in which Yiftach dedicates his daughter to a monastic existence. Either way, what Yiftach does is entirely foreign to Israelite values. His oath does not bind him to destroy his daughter's life, and of course does not entitle him to sacrifice her. However he sought to fulfill his vow, he should not have sought to fulfill it. And this tells us that even as Yiftach serves as an Israelite leader, nevertheless, assimilation had impacted him as well because perhaps even the most perverse of pagan practices, child sacrifice, has in some way become thinkable. Meanwhile, the tribe of Ephraim on the west side of the Jordan in the Holy Land, angered at not being asked to join the war, crosses to the east side and wages war against the members of Menashe living in Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. In other words, not only are Israelites not unified against their enemy, they are now fighting each other for not being unified against the enemy. In a civil war between tribes ensues. Ephraim is defeated and attempts to return to their territory. The fact that these two tribes, Ephraim and Menashe, live on opposite regions of the river seems to have somehow led to a difference in Hebrew pronunciation. Thus, whenever a member of Menashe would catch an Ephraimite trying to cross back over the Jordan, the Ephraimite would claim to be from Menashe, and the Ephraimite would be asked by the member of Menashe to pronounce a Hebrew word, shibboleth, in English rendered shibboleth, which among other meanings can refer to a sheaf of grain. Chapter 12, verse 5. And the Gileadites took the passages of the Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was that when those Ephraimites which were escaped said, Let me go over, that the men of Gilead said unto him, Art thou an Ephraimite? If he said, Nay, then they said to him, Say now, Shibolet. And he said, Sibolet, for he could not speak it. Then they took him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan, and there fell at that time of Ephraim 42,000. What is going on here? What can Menashe say that Ephraim cannot? Leading to this absolutely awful instantiation of the moment he speaks, he makes another Israelite despise him. The standard understanding is that for some reason Ephraim was not able to pronounce the Hebrew letter shin, saying instead sin which would mean that they're saying Sibolet instead of Shibolet marked them as Ephraimites. Understood this way, it is Ephraim that speaks differently from the rest of Israel. But this is also exceedingly problematic. Ephraim lived in the center of the Holy Land. Shin is one of the regular Hebrew letters. So why would Ephraim alone have developed an odd pronunciation of it? I am partial myself, therefore, to a theory put forward by the scholar E.A. Spizer, who suggests that it may well be that the members of Menashe in this story who lived on the east side of the Jordan, had taken on certain pronunciations derived from the Gentiles among them. They therefore pronounced the Hebrew letter shin as thin, pronouncing the word shibboleth as thibboleth. And Ephraim, like most Israelites, and like Israelis today, would not grow up with the th sound, and therefore, in attempting to imitate Menashe, would say sibboleth. In other words, only Menashe could say thibboleth. Spicer's point is that we think that Ephraim was the odd tribe out, but actually it was Menashe that had taken on a pronunciation that was foreign to the rest of Israel. Spicer gives the following interesting example in order to illustrate what he means. Imagine a war between Manhattan and Brooklyn, and Manhattanites battling in Brooklyn are attempting to cross the Brooklyn Bridge to get back into Manhattan, just as the Ephraimites fighting in Menashe's territory on the east side of the Jordan were attempting to get back to the Holy Land on the west side of the river. Here are Spicer's words, quote, 
May I be permitted a fictitious illustration, necessarily provincial, which is designed to show how easy it is to slip into errors of this kind. Let us assume that a particularly bitter sports contest had taken place at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn. A riot among the spectators ensued, and the followers of the invading team from Manhattan had to take to their heels. But they were overtaken just as they were attempting to cross the Brooklyn Bridge. Their one chance of escape was to pretend they were Brooklynites. But the local partisans were not to be fooled by such a ruse. How do you say W-O-R-D? The answer was word. It was a fatal mistake. The next day, readers were treated to a description of the incident. They promptly concluded that it was the Manhattan dialect to say word, whereas Brooklyn and all the rest of the country said void. Such a result might well be viewed as self-evident, but that does not make it right. End quote. In other words, it was Menashe that spoke strangely for an Israelite, but therefore only they could say Thibbolet. The Ephraimites spoke like the rest of their people, but to save their lives, they attempted to say Thibbolet, but it came out Sibbolet. In revealing themselves, they were killed. The Shibboleth story is thus a terrible tale of Jewish disunity, where Ephraim and Menashe, both members of Joseph, thought it utterly thinkable to kill one another. And if Spizer is correct, the fact that Menashe derived new phonetic capacities from its interactions with other peoples on the east side of the Jordan is intended to embody its disconnectedness from the rest of Israel in the Holy Land. The story thus reflects the further fragmentation of God's people. The very word shibboleth has become one that entered the English lexicon as a way of telling friend from foe. Famously, the code on D-Day between American troops involved one saying flash, and the response from the other would be thunder. Perhaps it is said because Germans cannot pronounce the th sound either. But this was to tell friend from foe. Here in the Bible, a word is being utilized not only between two tribes, but in a war between Menashe and Ephraim, both Josephites. They are bound by the same family, the same history, the same experiences, the same language, the same faith. Even the Jordan River does not truly divide them because the tribe of Yiftach, Menashe, has territory on both banks. They are brothers. The very fact that Shibboleth is a Hebrew word highlights the bond between them. And yet they fight with one another. Modern scholars of Yiddish has discovered what they call the gefiltefish line. Gefiltefish for the uninitiated is an Ashkenazic Jewish Sabbath dish, and some Jews eat it as a savory culinary concoction, and some eat it sweet with sugar added. The line that marks the two regions in Europe, in which one was known for savory gefiltefish and the other for sweet, also, linguists have showed, perfectly parallels the regions where two forms of Yiddish were spoken, the Lithuanian and the Galicianer pronunciations. The point, of course, is not that the amount of sugar and gefiltefish impacts pronunciation but that these were two different regions and that that was reflected in language and cuisine. At the same time, gefiltefish and Yiddish were cultural phenomena that, despite differences among Jews, actually highlighted commonalities among the Jews that lived in these two different regions. In a similar sense, the River Jordan from Menashe and Ephraim marked their cultural divisions. But of course, the Hebrew word, shibolet, actually highlights the connections between them and yet it is used by one tribe against another to ferret them out and to kill them. The Shibboleth story is highlighting how far Israel has fallen. It's akin to Jews choosing to kill each other by what they make for Shabbat, or whether they say Cholent or Chulent, or whether they read Hebrew in Sephardic or Ashkenazic pronunciation. It is about brother who should see brother and instead sees enemy. 
From a literary perspective, it is our indication that what Judges is giving us is a perfect reversal of the book of Joshua. Remember, Joshua's tale of the two altars was one of how a potential war between the Israelites on the two sides of the Jordan was exposed as a misunderstanding. Here in Judges, the exact opposite occurs. The Jordan becomes a dividing line for true civil war, for tribes killing one another. The story of Yiftach, therefore, is truly depressing. But if we look carefully, we can also find a hint to one truly inspiring and sublime symbolism. Because there is one other book in Hebrew Scripture whose story takes place during the Judges period. This, of course, is the book of Ruth. And that book is, as we'll see later in our journey through the Bible, also in its own way a mirror image of Judges. The book of Judges takes place throughout all of Israel, Ruth, in one town in Bethlehem. Whereas Judges is marked by violence and civil war, Ruth is a small, simple tale of loyalty and love, in which a Moabite woman and widow by the name of Ruth, loyal to her Israelite mother-in-law Naomi, embraces the people of Israel and falls in love with another member of this Judean family, Boaz. Boaz and Ruth first meet when Ruth announces to Naomi, Eleich vala ket bashibolim, I will go out and gather shibboleths, ears of grain. Providence brings her to Boaz's field, who as kinsman to Naomi's family redeems Ruth and her mother-in-law from destitution and marries Ruth. Ruth, of course, with Boaz, are David's ancestors. It is the ultimate biblical romance. Their eyes meet over the shibboleths, and the literary irony is intended for our benefit. In the book of Judges, shibboleth is a word used to turn Israelite against Israelite, whereas in Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite woman who has embraced Israel, meets a Judean over shibboleths and founds a family that will unite all Israel. In the period of Judges, leadership is ineffective, families are immoral, idolatry is rampant, but one family in Bethlehem, loyal to God and to each other, is about to set the stage during the period of Judges for the Davidic dynasty. It will be David who will unite Israel and create the Jerusalem of David that will join the tribes despite their differences. The book of Ruth begins, and it was in the days when the judges judged. But in character, her small story is so different than the despair of the judges' era. Thus Ruth reminds us that even in the times of greatest crisis, God sows the seeds of redemption yet to come, and that in the midst of a depraved time, seemingly small acts of heroism can lead to the salvation of a people. During this terrible disintegration, the foundation is laid for the Jerusalem and the Jewish unity that will come in the future. In the song Opening My Fair Lady, inspired by Shaw's preface to Pygmalion, Henry Higgins wonders, why can't the English teach their children how to speak? And he compares the English to other peoples who, he believes, teach their own languages properly. Henry Higgins sings, The Arabians learn Arabian with the speed of summer lightning. The Hebrews learn it backward, which is absolutely frightening. In the book of Judges, the Jewish unity established in Joshua runs backward and comes apart. But in the period of the Judges also lies the roots of David and Jerusalem, so that ultimately, over the centuries of Jewish exile, the Hebrews would learn to pray about Jerusalem in Hebrew, the language of their ancestors. And while they would pronounce that Hebrew somewhat differently from one another, their hopes and their dreams about this city were the same, binding them together and ensuring that the Jews, in their differences and in their unity, would return to Jerusalem once again. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.